Welcome to the Future Learning Design Podcast. There are ways you absolutely can demonstrate growth in these competencies, but that's all infrastructure that largely hasn't been built yet. And it needs to be built both with researchers, but also in the classroom. This is what we see with real kids at these ages, you know, but that's part of what we're hoping to carve that new ground and helping people reimagine what that could even look like. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you back and it's great to be able to bring you this Relearn conference special of the Future Learning Design podcast. There's a fantastic buzz around the Relearn conference, which started on Monday. Some amazing speakers and a huge amount of energy focused on the future of learning and bringing together an amazing group of passionate and expert learners who are committed to changing the future of learning and supporting a shift in the education system. Over the next couple of episodes, I'll be bringing you a selection of some of the amazing guests that have been speaking throughout the conference. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Yong Zhao, the Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas and a Professor in Educational Leadership at the Melbourne Graduate School. Jennifer Groff, who is an educational engineer, designer and researcher working for the WISE Qatar Foundation Global Innovation Hub. Also, I speak to Barak Habumugisha, who is a passionate learning leader in Kigali, Rwanda, and is setting up the Learn Life Hub in Kigali, the first of its kind in Africa. I also had the great opportunity to speak with Ramatula Arman, who is the founder and CEO of Teach for Afghanistan, an incredible youth-led organization doing amazing work with supporting lifelong learning, particularly for girls in Afghanistan. I also speak with Jamia Drummond Bay, who is a TED speaker and global instructional designer, author, educator, and CEO of Evolve Teacher. You can learn more about the Relearn Festival at relearnfestival.com. And don't forget to check out the Game Changers podcast, which is also providing recaps and other discussions with festival guests. Yong Zhao. And there is seem to be, you know, a general view of how education should be done by the leadership and uh, in many ways. And I think uh, they're wrong, of course, you know, it's, uh, uh, but I have not been really paying too much attention to honestly governments. I think for the past 30 years, all education reforms by governments have proven one thing, they're wrong. <laughs> they, are, they are fixing the wrong things. You know, if you look at all the government uh, reforms, there are only so many things they can play with, but they don't play with the most important thing. Yeah. If it, you look at education, so what can you do? You know, if you want to do education, so you have a system, you can only improve it. To improve it, yeah. what do you do? You say, okay, let's play with the curriculum, which everybody has to learn. So, you know, almost all governments have been saying, well, we have a new society, let's add content. And that's, well, our old content was not tough enough. Let's change the curriculum. Yeah. So they're playing with the curriculum a lot, you know. Yeah. And curriculum is associated with uh, testing. So let's uh, yeah. add yeah. more testing, you know. So we, we want students to learn this, let's test this. And then we have standards testing in mostly literacy and numeracy. And OECD jumps in with the yeah. PISA and all those things. So, But they said, okay, that's not enough. We have to use testing to hold schools and teachers accountable. So we yeah. publicize, publish the test results, and then we try to improve teachers. We do a lot of professional development. You know, we learn a lot from PISA to say, let's have better teachers who are 
better graduates from high school. We play with teachers. All mm -hmm. that George Bush did was send them to do more tests, you know, more degrees. And then we hold school leaders accountable. If you don't improve your schools, we'll fire you. We'll try. So we've been playing with all of those things. Yeah. I'm looking at the system. Now, of course, people talk about play with funding, you know, all those things. Yeah. But if you notice one thing, Tim, they don't talk about students. None of the education reforms ever talk about what are we going to do with students? Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to, no, no, if you look at reform, nobody yeah. says anything about students, but you know, students are the most important factor in learning. Yeah. yeah. Without learners, you know, unless you change the role of students, unless you yeah. make them the, the participating, but also owner of learning, yeah. you can change. That's why in over the last 30 years, have you seen education improved? No. Yeah. There's no, no data. Showing yeah. Have you seen this, this data of showing students uh, 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 the so-called achievement gaps closed? No. Mm. Actually, I was looking at the US data, NAEP data. You know, it's nothing. Yeah. You know, just, uh, it's well, looking at international data, PISA data, all those data. Yeah. Nothing has changed. Yeah. But we have done so much. Why? Yeah. <laughs> we really have. We're doing a lot. I mean, one of the things you've spoken about before, I know, is um, this kind of tyranny of certainty. Maybe this is the thing that make, that, that pushes us to keep tweaking and, and, and adapting at the edges because we're, we're obsessed with being certain that we're doing the right thing for those students, right? I mean, they are. Yeah. Well, that's actually, Tim, the, the, perhaps one of the most important things that I mean, you just, what you said is we have this very authoritarian view of education as adults, as someone who has the responsibility to create something. But we forget about really three things about children. One, they are natural born learners. Mm. They want to learn. Two, they are very diverse learners. They're very different. Yeah. Three, they're intentional learners. That they act, yeah. they think, they're active. So those three things, yeah. if you look at how have we ever examined them, and I just finished a book, uh, which will be published by Corwin. It's called Learners Without Borders. If we nice. don't control our students within the border of a curriculum, of a school, mm. of a classroom, then we might have a chance. Because students, when they pursue what they're good at, mm. what they're passionate about, you don't need to motivate them. No. You just need to support them. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the borders and the structures are what we, we cling to for certainty, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because you know, we feel like we're in control, you know. Exactly. And we, yeah. we used to. It, it, it's an illusion. Know, exactly. Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. Like, in, let's say, a hundred years ago, you could control. Remember, a hundred years, things yeah. did not change that fast. You really know. And also, there were not many jobs. It's just mm -hmm. one type of job. You go to the factory, you do it. I mean, really, you, you could control I mean, everything else in that entertainment. Imagine how many TV channels you had, how many songs, how many music you learned, how many websites you were on. It's massively enlarged. You know, like in, in my new book, I'm really trying to say, okay, a learner, technically, you can have your local community, but you can learn online. You can learn online with a lot of people. Now, I don't mean just watching courses. You can interact yeah. with a lot more people. Of course, yeah. But how many people is going to do it? You don't know. Like if, if you go to yeah. classroom, most classrooms today, you wouldn't believe. Just take China. China is a huge country. Take yeah. China as an example. Teachers still dominate. You know, they teach yeah. 60 students, 50 students, 45 students. Yeah. But how, why can't they just teach 10, 
five and let the others run the you know go learn on their own yeah. we had a um we, we have a show called silver lining for learning we had um yeah. five kids from nepal they're all learning from MOOCs, and yeah. they're they speak beautiful in english if they're in nepal a mm. poor mountainous isolated country learning from MOOCs down by harvard by stanford yeah why can't everybody else do it because yeah. we don't want them to do it Jennifer Groff. So I'm the first fellow at WISE, focused on innovation there, which has been really great. And so we are in the developing phase. We launched this summer the WISE Innovation Hub, which is essentially meant to be a platform to be a resource and facilitator of deep change for schools that are looking to do that deep change. So uh, our work actually started before COVID. We started in January. And so a lot of our work is about how to set up an individual innovation lab inside of a school to act as an engine of R&D, essentially, for them to identify problems or gaps or directions that that they want to move into, and then to work with us to study that problem, quickly build prototypes, try them out, pilot them, collect feedback, what's working and what's not, to innovate their way to where they want to go. And so the schools that we currently work with are schools that are already very redesigned in their model, and they're looking to continue to engineer their way to where they want to get to uh, and make sure that's working well, or schools that are a bit more on the traditional side, but are trying to do what I call the chasm jump, which is moving from the traditional model to competency-based or mastery-based, which really is like trying to replumb a house. Because in order to do that, you have to redo all of the foundational structures that we exactly. use in schools. And so those are the schools we work with now. And then, of course, COVID came along and all of a sudden every school became innovative. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's been really fun to watch in a way. I mean, I know this year has been hard in so many ways, but I have to say for me, who's worked in this space for 20 years to see the movement in the field has been outstanding because, you know, we are very conservative as a field and don't take a lot of risk. And it's just been great to see the changes that have happened. Brilliant. Yeah. And have you had... So I can imagine that there would be an attraction of certain schools who are already thinking in quite significantly disruptive and innovative ways to reach out to you as a support. Is that the trend or have you been working with more traditional schools to do the change work as well? Yeah, so we started under the radar, as any good startup does, you know, really close to home. And we started first with the two very progressive schools that are in Doha, Qatar. One is very young learners. And as I mentioned, it's a very deeply redesigned model already. It's beautiful. Before my time at WISE, I was the chief learning officer of Lumiar Schools, which is an amazing network mm. of innovative schools. And so th this school in Doha modeled a lot of their school model off of Lumiar Schools. Okay. And so a lot of the work we do with them is about helping them figure out how to continue to scale and to make sure they have evidence that what they're doing is working because it is so non-traditional. The other school we work with in Doha is a secondary STEM academy, and they're much more in the space of having, you know, worried about the traditional assessments, the GCSEs, the A-levels, all of that stuff, and they don't want to be beholden to that anymore, and they're trying to move to mastery-based, competency-based, which I'm sure you know is a big trend in the U.S. especially, but globally. Yeah. And so now that we're starting to talk more publicly about the work, we are getting a number of schools contacting us that are trying to do that jump. And I think very simply, 
lastly, you know, the OECD put out a beautiful new framework of what the modern competencies are. And it's very comprehensive. It's not very deep yet, though, right? It doesn't really go under mm -hmm. the hood. Yeah. And so it's beautiful compass. And I love that metaphor that they use. But how do schools get there? Exactly. And that's the work that we're I mean, trying to fill in. That's the big question, isn't it? And we, I mean, there's, it's amazing to see the startups like Learn Life and the, the real amazing development that, that is happening in that space. But also, there are so many schools, I think, crying out to see examples of the transformations, right? Because there are so many people thinking about this and how do we go from here to there? You know, yep. how do we get there? Yeah, as you say, it's a chasm, right? <laughs> exactly. And what's tricky about reform, as we know, or redesign, change, whatever you want to call it, it, it can't be prescriptive. It can't be top down and it can't be a cookie cutter. And that's what makes this work harder, but it's also what we believe, you know, it's not that hard either to set up these engines of innovation that we call them inside a school in order to power that forward. And that's what we're doing with the schools we work with. Amazing. It's so good. And I mean, I just really feel that there's a real strong need for these kinds of agents of support for change in that space. So what's the kind of longer term vision for the Innovation Hub? Yeah, great question. So we're continuing to grow. Our plan is to continue to grow the network of schools that we're working with and have a nice diversity of the types of schools that we're working with. So yeah. independent, traditional, public, private, and working together to R&D a lot of the core challenges they have. Because for schools that are trying to move in this direction, they generally have a lot of the same structural challenges. So how do we design good rubrics? How do we make real competencies out of this? How do we figure out the right set of competencies that we want to work with, coordinating things like the A-levels and you know IB and the new OECD yeah. framework? And that's a personal journey for every school, but it's also the same journey in a way, right? It's the same sort of design journey. Again, it's not cookie cutter, but it's also, they can learn a lot from each other and benefit from the prior work that other schools have done. So we'll continue to expand the network over the next few years, grow the number of schools, share the R&D that they're building together, and then continue to share that outwardly so that other schools can learn from that journey and can also use the great tools that they've put good R&D and development into buildings. Yeah, that's so good. I love it. In fact, I was having this exact conversation today about the lack of research base for many of these things, right? I mean, you know, we know this stuff works, you know, it works for kids and it works for the type of educational experience that we want to create. But I, I've always felt there's just a, a distinct lack of research evidence. I mean, you come back to the cognitive science stuff, which pulls you back into a kind of knowledge rich traditional space. And it's like, actually, we need a really robust set of evidence for really positive, progressive educational models. Definitely. And, you know, even in the learning engineering field, if you look at that work, which I think is outstanding, it still, I think, is distinct from this work because they're still looking at the traditional model of education. And I'm not, you know, we never advocate to totally throw out math, literacy, science. We're not saying get rid of the disciplines. What we're saying is if you use the disciplines to guide the structure of your school, you've already lost your kids because they don't live in a siloed world world. And so everything else, it's all the skills on top of that. And so you really do have to re-engineer what you're doing. And part of the challenge of this work is helping people reframe what is success? What are the outcomes? What is the evidence we're looking for? Is it test scores? I don't think it is. So, and the OECD frameworks, you know, argues that it's not. So we definitely do need to build a collective knowledge base. And we also need to collectively redefine what are the outcomes we're after actually looking for. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's also getting comfortable with something a bit more fuzzy than quantitative outcomes, because I think we're, we're still in a bit too enamored to what we can measure and what we can count. And actually, the transformative competencies in the, the framework of the OECD, those are not things that you can 
measure with a stick or a ruler or a... not in our traditional way but that and that is but... part of the challenge is also helping people understand you know we need to rethink how we capture that data and what does it mean when we yeah. we do that how do we make meaning of that and there are ways you absolutely can demonstrate growth in these competencies but that's all yeah. infrastructure that largely hasn't been built yet and it needs to be built both with researchers but also in the classroom we can't just have people in a lab deciding what is creativity and we also, teachers need more support to define that and that feedback loop back to the research then. This is what we see with real kids at these ages. And that will take time to build, yeah. you know, but that's part of what we're hoping to carve that new ground and helping people reimagine what that could even look like. Barak Abu Mugisha. Well, I don't know how much you know about Land Life Kigali, but it's a hybrid co-learning, co-working community, operating to support the wider land life vision and the needs of learners in Rwanda. It's, it's basically a hub that is going to be one of its kind, the first in Africa. And so we are very, very happy to be leading the change in education in Africa. And uh, the vision of Land Life Kigali is to be a lighthouse organization leading the educational change in Rwanda, and through this exemplar, the whole of the African continent. One of the biggest things that we are trying to, to do is to establish a self-sustaining learning hub in Rwanda to bridge the skill gap between high rates of school, college, and university completion and ongoing high levels of unemployment. So we have now lots of high school you know, graduates who are able to finish, but they are not able to continue to university. We also have university graduates who are not able to get jobs. So there is really, we had an issue after the genocide. The, the only problem was to actually have access to education. Now, there is access to education. People are going to school. We have uh, 12 years basic education free of charge. And so that's one of the progresses that Rwanda has done to provide access to education. Now, the problem is, how do we support these learners, these learners who have finished school, uh, to actually generate an income? And there have been a lot of projects, a lot of campaigns to help these graduates begin and set up enterprises that can help them uh, thrive in communities. But these have been caused by the fact that the education system currently does not provide skills that can help these learners to thrive and begin enterprises. And that's why Land Life Kigali comes in to, to actually support these graduates or even people who are still in school to, to have that space, to have that community of learning where they can come and learn a skill, which skill will actually be translated into a job. And, and so, aim is to target the capacity of post-secondary post or post-tertiary learners to use their knowledge and understandings in enterprising and entrepreneurial ways in order to generate personal or business income. Now, we are able to do this by delivering professional learning, face-to-face -face and remote programs, which target different user groups. But beyond that, we also develop modules of learning that target key competencies and skills essential for business and entrepreneurship, including personal communication skills, collaborative capacity, and team participation. Mm -hmm. So Land Life Kigali 
really includes everyone. It includes whoever wants to learn a skill and you know wants to have a purpose in their life. So we are we hope to be set up in Kigali for the first time, but the need is really high and we along the way we hope to also start these hubs in in the northern part of Rwanda and in, in the eastern part of Rwanda and in the southern part of Rwanda. So it's it's really a mission that we we have set up. The need is there. People really want to learn and they they want to actually use the information they acquired from school, put it in practice and put it uh, to good use mm. by developing the, the skills that can support them. Brilliant. That's wonderful. So what actual yeah. stage of development is the hub at? You're up and running already or it's still in development? Well, we, we actually we are hoping to launch March this year. But because of the outbreak of COVID-19, we're not able to get running. But we hope that beginning next year, we will be starting. Great. And so that leads on nicely to your session at the ReLearn conferences, specifically on Rwandan education system experience with COVID-19. Maybe you could say a little bit about what you're going to be speaking about in your session. Yeah, well, I will be be speaking on the impact of COVID-19, basically on the education sector in Rwanda. Of course, COVID-19 has really impacted a lot of the life of human beings. But I think it has also provided an opportunity for the communities to actually change and act on the education sector. Because it's no longer about delivering learning into the classroom. But this is the time this has to actually deliver learning elsewhere. People can learn from wherever they are. They can learn remotely. They can also go into the classroom and learn. So learning has to be about experiences. It shouldn't be about going into the classroom because I really imagine that many learners have been able to accumulate their learning ways even when the schools have been closed. So I think it is you really brought an opportunity for acting on changing education system. There's really hope because everyone sees the needs of the of changing and policies about education going forward. And, and I think really everyone sees that the system that has been created does not really help learners to actually thrive after they finish school. So we, we see a big number of graduates who are not able to get jobs. So the government is really seeing that there is a gap and through this, there has been creation of um, vocational training centers where, where learning is actually based uh, on hands-on skills. And of course, getting into other learning methods, the curriculum has been changed, I think, in 2015, that actually bases on developing competencies for learners so that they, they are actually competent graduates who are able to actually compete on the job market. So... The policymakers see that this is a need, but we cannot leave it out on them alone. I think it's really important that it's an inclusive thing. It's communities of lawyers, communities of teachers, communities of students. It's a job of everyone to actually stand up and say, time is now to change this education system in a way that actually it supports, it helps, it builds the competences that people are able to actually be able to earn incomes after they finish school. It presents an opportunity to actually provide learning methods 
that can support these learners to actually create a job rather than seeking one. Ramatula Amen. Thank you very much. I'm very much excited to be speaking at this relearned uh, festival. I'll be speaking about education inequity. It will be about gender discrimination specifically to women. And it will be about based on our experience and the work that we do at Teach for Afghanistan. Some of the very unique local approaches that we do take in Afghanistan in a context where women represent over 50% of the population. But when you look at the schools, when you look at the number of people in power and authority, you'll see very few of them really having the ability to decide for themselves. So it will be about the, the challenges the women face in Afghanistan, just because they're women. It's uh, also about uh, so much regular attacks against girls' education, against schools, against women, and where over 3.7 million children are, are out of school, over 60% of them are girls, where cultural beliefs are making it so hard for a girl to get educated, where over a thousand girls on a daily basis, they drop out of school just because they are girls, just because there are beliefs that they shouldn't be educated. It's a lack of female teachers. That's one of the biggest challenges they face. So there are 80,000 vacant teaching positions of which over 50,000 are for women and where we really lack women teachers. And according to several local beliefs, people do not want to send their girls to be taught by a male teacher. And due to that, millions of girls are out of schools and parents are not letting their girls to go to school. So what a teacher of Afghanistan do, we do hire highly qualified young fellows, young teachers. We send them to schools, majority of whom are women. What we do at Teach for Afghanistan from several levels, we do strengthen our uh, relationship with the communities because we understand their language with their own understanding with their own culture and religious beliefs, we share with them why a girl should be educated. We held sessions. That's also done by us, by our fellows, and those who complete these two years of fellowship as an alumni who work with these local communities to strengthen relationship and really change this belief and increase awareness about girls' rights and women's rights. So that's also another way we tackle the cultural beliefs in that regard. Another big problem is also the security of the school premises where the schools lack wash facilities. The schools even do lack chairs, desks, or even any school border at all. So that very much puts the children under risk, especially the women who are so much increasingly under attack by acid attacks, by security, by bombs, by gunfires. So women do, people do have fear with their child's life, so they do not send their girls to school majority of them. So that's another problem we do also. That's the solution again lies within the communities themselves. If the communities take this role to protect the schools, so that's again our strengthened relationship with the communities and, and also providing security trainings to the fellows we send. So they provide this training inside the schools. So they know with their rare resources that they have at hand, how do they protect themselves? And at the same time, it's also strengthening relationship with local security authorities where we really talk with them and so that they are protecting the schools from all these attacks. Amazing. What, what incredible work. One of the things I, I found fascinating about what you were saying was the idea of changing hearts and minds in terms of the parents or some of the 
the male members of the population who are maybe not valuing girl children and valuing education as much. Have you had any specific examples that you can think of where you've been successful in shifting people's mindsets around that? Uh, thank you very much. Actually, just off a recent story, which was also shared by Malala Fund as well, who supports Sri Srivanas and work in Parwan province. Uh, Afsana, you know, one of our students who was in Parwan province, their parents, once because she was at ninth grade, the parents had the same belief. Now she, she can read, she can write, so she had to drop out from school. So she was at the verge of dropping out from schools, like it was a time for her to say goodbyes. When the teacher noticed that, a fellow teacher of Afghanistan, she did plan a very unique thing, obviously, for the Hiram initiative. She tried to talk with the parents and all, I think that worked to some level, but she had to do more. And she really organized a kind of a small teaching session where she invited the father of the girl, of Afsana's father, to the classroom. So when the father came, this girl was wearing a burqa, completely Islamically. She did also bring her uh, child as well. So she was teaching this Afsana and all other girls. So at the end, Afsana, she asked Afsana also to share some uh, lessons and all those. The father was seeing that her girl is so active and all. But I think that wasn't enough. So what the of teacher of Ghanathan shared was like, see, I am really accepting and appreciating the local cultures. I am wearing scarves. I am educated. I have completed university. I have not become a bad girl. I am not a bad woman. I can also have a family. See, this is my child. I am teaching and teaching is not a bad thing. And I am able to teach and bring change because I have been allowed to. So if you allow Afsana, your daughter, she will be also educated. And at the same time, she can be a good woman. She can have a child. She can be married. So this is how I think this really worked. And Afsana stayed at school. And she's right now, she will be 11th grade. So this was just one example how it's really changing people's mindset. So that also, I think, will have its impact when the father, whenever he will talk with other same-minded people, men. So I think uh, change will be brought slowly, but hopefully strongly. Slowly, but strongly, I think. And with regards to when you bring in the fellows into the program, are they already trained? as educators, or are you training them when they come in as graduates? During the written test uh, interview and recruiting procedures, we ensure we hire those people, those highly qualified people who are committed, who have the general understanding about the education equity, education problems in Afghanistan. And at the same time, they have a solution for them, whatever it is. So they come highly qualified. But a teacher for Afghanistan to prepare them to go to school as a highly qualified teacher, we do also provide them training. So the training that we provide are, are three types. The first training is of educational uh, pedagogy. So that's overall how do you become a good teacher, teaching curriculum and following that, teaching plan and everything. The second training that we provide is of education psychology because in a country where facing conflict and war, the children may not be, may be physically in front of you, but mentally not. So how do they prepare students and understand their situation and help students reach their potential? So that's education psychology training. And the third training that we provide is of education management and leadership. That's to prepare them both to become as a good teacher inside school, building relationship at different levels, and that also helps them uh, during their two years of fellowship. And once they complete this two years of fellowship and become an alumni, so they are aware of all these, and uh, they have, they're packed with all these knowledge and information. Amazing. One of the challenges is that there's a very traditional idea of what a teacher is, you know, what good teaching looks like. 
and obviously learn life with their learning paradigm is extremely progressive and has all these 27 different new methodologies different progressive methods is that coming into your planning and your training trying to kind of do something which is more centered around the girls themselves and what they need or what their passions and strengths are that's actually the center of our focus because in Afghanistan due to all these challenges and problems the way people look at teachers i think it's very much similar in most of the third world countries in Afghanistan as well the way a teacher is envisioned it's like a person standing with a stick in his hand because that's how we were taught that's how I, we looked at our teachers where it was so much teacher centered a teacher just having a book in front of him that was all about school we knew and we thought of but the, our focus at teacher vanosan is very much presenting a very different kind of teachers a very friendly creating a friendly environment inside classrooms so the teachers of teacher vanosan the fellows they are trained specifically to represent this new image of a teacher so when they go they try their best to not just uh, have a one teaching a methodology of reading but at the student centered classrooms where students have the right to speak to talk it's also like teaching them through playing games different kind of role modeling and so many different methodologies they try to really represent a new image of a teacher and also at the same time that's the only way they can be a good friend to students where they can understand their challenges and solve them they can understand uh, their students potential and how prepare plans for each of them to really reach that potential so it's a teacher vanosa and the focus is all about representing that new image and really changing the t- people's thinking of the traditional teaching methods so that means they they also held uh, sessions at their schools they also in each school that they teach there are committees made where students have their student committees where they come with complaints a single student if they are beaten something happens so they can raise their voice and the teacher can help them so now students have their voice they have also prepared committees like students for greenery of school at health committees sports committees so much new things are coming up in these schools with those new image that teachers not someone you should be afraid of but you should uh, be a friend of so that's the new image we are trying to bring on that's really wonderful and just as a final question is there a way that people can actually support teacher afghanistan externally or you know from from where they are around the world thank you very much teacher afghanistan is being supported by these wonderful people wonderful organizations and champions and since 2016 until today and it has been all due to their support where teacher afghanistan has been able to bring this change into the society context and the different mindset that we are trying to so at teacher afghanistan um, we we do accept donations from externally as well internally as well local funding as well so they can visit our website where we have specifically mentioned how they can support us so that's financial support at the same time as you know it's about also resources where schools lack premises and resources we do have accept that kind of support as well and also knowledge information opportunities for our children students so in afghanistan this is also not very common for children for schools where they participate in programs and debates and fund learning practices but at the global level especially during the pandemic something that i saw the children had opportunity there were schools uh, where they would provide such opportunities for children to have their voice to speak the way i am speaking right now 
So such opportunities as well, that will be great so that we can share to children, they can participate, they can apply. So such support would be also very much highly appreciated where we can share it with our students. They can have this opportunity. They can see that the world is really listening to them and they are also part of the change at a wider level. Jamia Drummond Bay. So yes, this is my third pandemic. I am in Malaysia now, but I'm American. And when I decided to dive into the world of education, I wanted to do just that, like the world of education, not the structure and the systems that I was taught, you know, growing up. And I also wanted to experience what other cultures and countries were doing, what was working, what wasn't, and allow the world to teach me. Originally, I thought, okay, I'll do this and then I'll bring this back to the United States. And I started in South Korea because at the time, uh, the United States, uh, Barack Obama, this was in 2009, he lauded South Korea and the education system. And, you know, in the media, we hear, we're constantly told what we should follow, especially as educators, you know? And so I thought, well, what if I go? What if I just go to South Korea and see, you know, is this really true? Does Obama really know (laughs) what he's asking from us? And so I did. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. It was my first uh, year as an educator. And um, that's when I experienced my first pandemic. It was the swine flu H1N1. It, It was interesting because it was my first pandemic, but it was also my first year teaching. So it was kind of like all I knew. You know, (laughs) just to figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the masks and students, some attending school, some not attending school uh, and just trying to figure out ways to make them happy. And and also I had my own goal of being taught by the world. So my entire process then and now was just watching my students and feeling from the energy that they gave me what worked and what didn't. What I noticed was a lot of my counterparts, educators who came in um, differently with a mindset of this is what I know, were following strategies and systems, you know, and and instead of saying, okay, well, this isn't working for the kid, it was, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. Whereas I didn't have that mindset. And so mine was, okay, this isn't helping you. Okay, what will help you? Do you like this? Okay, is this working? You know, and those strategies over time, uh, the next pandemic started out as an outbreak in 2015. It was the MERS um, that came from the Middle East and then in South Korea. And then by that time, it was my second time around. So I said, okay, I've kind of done this before, but let's see. Now there was a shift in digital learning was now a big part of things as well. So then really bringing in online strategies, uh, gamification and things like that, Mm. just really trying to engage those students, the students of 2015 or not the students of 2009, you know? And so basically my session is really focused on a lot of these tools and techniques that I've learned over time teaching virtually uh, and in the classroom to really keep the students engaged because a lot of the things that we don't tend to realize until it's all over are some of the things that are normal uh, when you actually attend school physically that students complain about but really miss when they don't have that. Yeah, like the connection, you know, yeah. like 
the, the conversations when they're at their lo- lockers or walking through the halls, they miss it. Right? That's For sure. How you yeah. make friends or, you know, look at someone that you may be interested in. So how do we implement sort of random connection and things like that while also teaching virtually? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. That's yeah, a great question. I always feel this and education ultimately is a really human interaction, right? Yeah. And so it's really difficult when you strip all that away and you're just left with screen to screen, you know, zoom to zoom. And it's, you know, where does that connection reside when you've, you Absolutely. know, you're in that situation? So yeah, interesting. I really believe that education hurts. It becomes painful and traumatic when the teachers remain stagnant but we don't evolve and grow as well. And so that there's a lot of learning and unlearning all the time. What worked for us before won't necessarily work now. And being excited about that, yeah. you know, that really helps us all to, to grow yeah. um, as a society. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Because it, yeah, it's always been a big irony for me that people who are learning, learning is their business, right? Learning is their right. fuel, but actually right. they don't necessarily always feel like that's for them. It's, you know, the learning is for the students rather than for me as an educator. And yeah, I, I don't really understand that personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember when uh, I first started to design curriculums and really push back against different things, different concepts and different learning styles in different countries. And one of the things that frustrated me most was that I didn't feel like I had a support system with other educators. I felt like I actually bothered the educators around me by being so enthusiastic and outgoing. You know, the more I did, they felt like the more pressure they had. But me, it was just I was excited about doing it. It was all I wanted to do. And okay, how was the other way I could do this? And so for me, uh, I started to study entrepreneurship and just the mindset of entrepreneurs, because as an educator, we aren't often applauded to take risks. But when you're an inventor or an entrepreneur, that's literally your goal (laughs) is to fail forward. You know, and I really believe that mindset as well, just trying things and and having that growth mindset of feeling forward and teaching that and and also owning that ourselves really helps us to be okay with making mistakes because you have to make some mistakes in order to to really achieve in the end. No, definitely. And the system of education historically has been just one of the most highly structured places to work right and I think I think historically as well that that has attracted people who really like structure yeah and that's that's fine that's great you know that's the way it needed to work but actually we're getting to a place now and I totally agree with you the idea of entrepreneurship is central right not necessarily in business entrepreneurship but just the the mindset and the the approach of being an entrepreneur is is what we need right now um, everywhere just to create value socially and you know yes. emotionally and and commercially in the end of course as well yeah exactly and yeah. it's I think it's one that we are breaking through faster now than ever you know because the systems can't work now because of what's happening in the world so now you know there are questions <laughs> happening just because we've had to flip things around I think it's a beautiful thing that we're experiencing now uh, because a lot of the fears have to be tested. Thank you so much for joining us. Some fantastic learning from all of the guests. 
you will find contact links and schedule links in the show notes. If you're interested, please do check out the other guests on the Future Learning Design podcast, where we grapple with similar wicked problems of how to innovate and support change in education.